Bible, do turn to the last book in the Bible, to Revelation chapter 1. Uh, what we want to look at this evening is verses 9 through 20, so the last half, really, of Revelation's first chapter. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said that a true gospel sermon is a sermon that simply tells you to look to Jesus Christ. And if that's a good rubric, and I think it is, for understanding God's glory and His good news is the revelation to John is nothing more than a gospel book, because over and over, all it seems to be doing is telling us to look to the glory of Jesus Christ. And what we get is the first time in Revelation, in this evening's text, a vision that John receives. And it's a vision about seeing the Son of Man. So let me read verses 9 through 20. Pray briefly that God would bless our time, and then we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us once again through His Word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together once again. Our Father, we ask that your blessing would be upon us. As you have promised it to those who read this word, who hear this word, and who keep this word, help us to look upon Jesus Christ this evening, that we might find life in His name. Amen. You may be seated. John All is a research professor of environmental science at Western Washington University. And kids, it's a very fancy title. That simply says he gets paid to go research the wonders of the world by going on these amazing adventures, these mountain climbing excursions. He's been on so many of them and so full of stories are his experiences that he, about five years ago, he published a memoir that was titled Icefall. That just recounts all of the adventures that he's pursued throughout his time researching environmental science. And the seventh chapter is simply titled Everest. And he says at the outset of this chapter, no matter how many times you've seen Everest, it always takes your breath away. And I wonder if you've ever been to a place, you've seen something that takes your breath away. The Apostle John did, didn't he? 
But of course, the Apostle John didn't see something that took his breath away in our text. He saw someone that took his breath away, which is none other than the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what we're getting now in this vision, this real first vision of Revelation, is John beholding the Son of Man in his risen, exalted glory. And it's such a glorious vision that you'll notice John doesn't even have words to describe what he sees. Kids, if you notice when we were reading verses 9 through 12, or 9 through 20, did you see the number of times that John essentially says his presence, his glory, his feet were like, his eyes were like, his voice was like. He's grasping for words. So he resorts to, as he often does in this book, just word pictures. I really can't describe it, but here's what it was like. And I hope some of you, I hope many of you have have a deep doctrine of Jesus Christ that gets you to points where in your devotion of Him, your love for Him, you're just searching for words to describe who He is, to describe what He's done. So great and glorious is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And students, I hope you've had an opportunity even in your life where you've looked on the Lord Jesus with the eyes of faith and He has genuinely taken your breath away. He's caused you to stand back and be astonished at His beauty and His glory. And if that's never happened, we want to pray that that happens to all of us tonight because we get a chance for it to happen to all of us tonight as we want to go about the business of seeing the Son of Man. So the simple theme in this first vision is the glory of Christ in His church. The glory of Christ in His church. And you'll just notice it in two parts. First, we'll see John's commission. Secondly, John's vision. Commission and then vision. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we just made it through the first eight verses, which is very much the prologue and the greeting to this wonderful book. Uh, Last week, we saw yet again how uh, John weds together these two realities of theology, you know, deep truth about God, and doxology, uh, passionate worship about God, these things that often flow back and forth in the book of Revelation because we heard this word from the Trinity, we heard this word about victory, we heard this word of sovereignty, and now it's time to get down to the business of all of these visions. And the visions that come actually following John's commission. Look at verse 9 once again. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. You could probably circle all three of those words, meditate on them for not too terribly long, and realize that they're excellent summations of the Christian life, aren't they? It's a life of tribulation. It's a life of the kingdom. And it's a life of patient endurance. Jesus said, didn't he, throughout his teaching, even the apostolic teachings as well, that it was going to be through patient endurance of tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you want to notice there too in verse 9 that John encourages us to remember that we don't endure tribulation in isolation. We do it together, which is why he can say, I am your partner. I join with you in this tribulation. I join with you in this endurance. I join with you in this kingdom. And so I hope many of you can be like John that say, yes, I have people that walk alongside me in Jesus Christ in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of seeking the kingdom, in the midst of our endurance. Well, the commission comes on a particular place. Notice the end of verse 9. John says he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patmos was this kind of rocky and desolate island remote from modern-day Turkey. It was on that island that the Roman 
uh, powers, they had this prison-like settlement where they would stash away Roman citizens that weren't really good for the order of Roman society. They were disrupting Roman society. They were danger to Roman society. And John tells us that he was one of the disruptive, dangerous citizens simply because he was trusted in God's Word and proclaiming the testimony of Jesus Christ and was sent there in exile. And I wonder if you were ever to enter into like a spiritual time machine and your life was to go back to that late first century, would your devotion to God's Word and your ministry of Christ's testimony mean you'd be somewhat disruptive to the good order of Roman society, a pagan people? Well, John certainly was. So the place for this commission was on Patmos. Notice the time of the commission. It's on a Sunday, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Kids, maybe you've wondered before why it is that we call Sunday the Lord's day. A main reason why is because of what we're told here in Revelation chapter 1. But not just that, the New Testament makes quite clear to us Sunday was the day on which Jesus rose again. And right after that, the saints of Christ, they began to gather together on Sunday because every Sunday is an Easter holiday as God's people gather to worship the risen King, to praise their exalted Lord. And so John is there in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now remember, this John is the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. And he seems to be using language even from John chapter 4, which is a very significant chapter related to New Covenant worship. He's there talking, Jesus is, to the woman at the well, and he says, true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And here he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So you want to picture John there on the island of Patmos. He's worshiping God on a Sunday when suddenly his worship is interrupted. Verse 10 through 11 tells us he heard a trumpet. I'm sorry, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Those seven churches listed in verse 11, seven churches in Asia Minor in the ancient world, seven churches in modern day Turkey. Write what you see. That's the commission. Now it leads to John's vision. I remember watching this war movie, and this is a common scene that you can get in military film throughout the ages where you have this scene towards the end of the movie. and uh, There's an older mother who is just gardening out in the front yard. And she's kind of facing the house, and she hears a voice sound from behind her. And the way that the movie is constructed, you don't actually hear that voice, but the camera zooms in on her face, and something you see written across her face is shock. Surprise, and the camera pans out, and the one that's spoken to her is none other than her long-looked-for son finally come home. And in the same way, John now hears this voice, and he turns, and he sees, notice, verse 12 and 13, he turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. We'll come back to the lampstands at the end because they'll show up in verse 20 as well. The picture here John sees is of the Son of Man, which is the favorite title that Jesus would use for himself in his ministries recorded in the Gospels. It's a title taken from Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10 especially is useful. You could go home later this evening or sometime this week and compare Revelation 1 here at the end to Daniel chapter 10, and you'll find all these similar images used between those two prophetic visions. And what I want you to see in John's vision is three simple things. Who Jesus is, number two, what Jesus did, and number three, where Jesus is. 
So who Jesus is, number one, he is the faithful priest. Look at verse 13 as it continues. He saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So this is the clothing of the priesthood. Not just that, it was in the Old Testament that the priests would minister in God's tabernacle, in God's temple, among God's presence, among the lampstands. And that the Son of Man is among the lampstands is underscoring His priestly work for His people. He's the faithful priest. Number two, He's the all-knowing God. Look at verse 14. The hairs of His head were white, like white wool, like white snow. Kids, that may be a striking image. Looks like He's all white. And its language is actually taken from Daniel chapter 7, which again is a vision of the Son of Man. But here's what's interesting, is in Daniel chapter 7, the vision is of the Son of Man ascending to the Ancient of Days, the Ancient of Days, who is dressed in all white with white hair. But now, what does Revelation 1 say? It's not the Son of Man ascending to the Ancient of Days, but the Son of Man is the Ancient of Days. And the picture of white hair underscores his all-encompassing wisdom, his all-searching knowledge. He's the all-knowing God. Number three, he is the righteous judge. Look at verse 14 through 15. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. The image there, of course, of a flame speaks of his purity. The image of burnished bronze speaks of power. Uh, those of you that maybe play sports, so kids or students thinks about, think about this, is when you play some type of a sport, your, your footwear is, is very important. You know, in my own sport of soccer, the kind of cleats that you would use were always something we always talked about in the boot room. We're going to wear studs, we're going to wear hard sole shoes, we're going to wear something else. Because if you didn't have the right shoes on, the, the game wasn't going to go according to plan. And the ancient world is quite a similar thing when it came to military warfare. If you were a soldier and didn't have the right shoes, your feet would quickly become bloodied and blistered, and you would be quite easily conquered at that point because you'd be hampered. And the vision here of Christ's feet as though they are burnished bronze, refined in a fire, speaks of feet strong enough to crush your enemies in righteous judgment. So he's the faithful priest, the all-knowing God, the righteous judge, number four, the mighty prophet, Verse 15 through 16, his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So kids, this language of a sharp two-edged sword is going to show up later on in Revelation when Jesus comes back. And do you think when, when Jesus comes back, he actually will have a sharp two-edged sword flying out of his mouth? You should say no. Because <laughs> apocalyptic literature is not meant to be taken that kind of literalistically. Some of you know Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which says what? The Word of God is living and active and is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's speaking about the piercing power of Christ's Word. That He's not only the merciful, tender Savior that comes to you with tones of gentleness and kindness. He's also the sovereign King of the nations whose Word will burst forth and break through rebellious hearts now in faith or then, as we saw in recent weeks, in wailing. So who Jesus is, faithful priest, all-knowing God, righteous judge. He is also the mighty prophet. And fifthly and finally, he is the glorious Lord. You see the end of verse 16. His face was like the sun shining 
in full strength. My kids, I don't know if you've ever gone outside on a sunny day and tried to look up into the sun. And if you did, you probably realize you can't do it for very long, right? It's just too strong of a sight. The brilliance is too blinding to behold for any amount of time before you actually damage your eyes. Such is the glory of Christ's face that you can't look into it very long before you realize that this brilliance and this radiance is all-consuming. This is who Jesus is, and now we want to notice in verse 17 what Jesus did. I suppose it's the most famous scene, at least as preachers use it, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the Pevensey children are with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And the beavers are saying, hey, Aslan is on the move. This great lion king is soon to come. And in fact, you are going to meet him quite soon. And Susan Pevensey replies, oh, I think I might be a little nervous meeting this king. And Mrs. Beaver responds, that you will, dearie. I doubt anyone has stood before him and not had their knees a-knocking. And of course, John beholds the king of kings in the fullness of his glory, and his knees do more than just knock. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I don't think you're going to understand the fullness of this response if you don't remember who John the Apostle was. He was the beloved disciple. His head rested on the Lord Jesus' chest at that night of the first Lord's Supper. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He prayed with Jesus. He ministered with Jesus. You might think then in our current context of how people tend to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ, he would turn around and see that it was Jesus there and say, Ah, hey, it's so good to see you again. I've missed you. But no, he falls down as though he's dead. Such is the all-encompassing brilliance and majesty of this king. Like another apostle would say when the Lord Jesus appeared to him in power, Depart from me, for I am an unworthy man. Christ begins to comfort him, you'll notice verse 17 and following, about what he did. He laid his right hand on John, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died. Parents, you want to make sure, of all the things that your children learn in your four walls at home, more than two plus two equals four, Austin is the capital of Texas. World War II ended in 1945, is that Jesus died. But he didn't stay dead. He died for sins, but he rose again. For look at what Jesus goes on to say. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Now, students, you want to think about what keys communicate? It still does this in our current context, but not in the same way it would have in the ancient world. Whoever possessed the keys showed that they were the possessor of the property. So if you had the keys, you were in charge of the building. If you had the keys, you were in charge of the place. Jesus says, I have the keys. I'm in charge of what? Death in Hades. By virtue of his all-conquering victory in his resurrection, he now, in a very real sense, he owns death. And for some of you, that's a soothing thought. For some of you, it should be a scary thought. Because what he's saying is there's a time coming when Christ, because of his authority, he's going to unlock the graves and let loose the dead. 
For some of you, that unlocking of your grave will be a most terrifying sight. Because he's going to let you loose to eternal destruction because you've rejected him. For others of you, however, and I hope this is all of you, he'll let you loose. And what a glorious day that will be. Because it will mean final resurrection to eternal life because you've received him. This is what Jesus has done. This is who Jesus is. Notice now where Jesus is. Verse 19 reiterates the simple commission. Skip down then to verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Kids, you might remember from last week I told you John's favorite number was seven. You see it here, don't you, in one verse once again. Seven, 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 seven. We'll think more about, Lord willing, the seven stars next week because they apply to the seven letters to the seven churches. The essential thing you need to see here is what the seven lampstands represent. It makes it plain, doesn't it? End of verse 20 are the seven churches. Seven churches that represent the fullness of the church, I think, throughout all of the ages. What it's telling us is that vision of the glory of Christ is in his church. Because where did John see him? I saw one standing like a son of man among the seven lampstands. It's yet again a reminder of Jesus' promise when he ascended to the Father's right hand at the end of Matthew's gospel. Behold, I am with you always. And God's presence in Jesus Christ is meant to be a comfort. But we might see in the coming weeks in these letters to the churches that sometimes his presence among his people is a most terrifying reality. I wonder what might change in our churches today, and put it home specifically to us, what could change in Redeemer Presbyterian Church if we truly understood the glory of Christ is in this place for our good, but also for our perfection. This is the glory of Christ in His church. Four years ago or so, I sat in this doctoral seminar at the seminary. It was on the theology of Jonathan Edwards. So an entire week, we just were reading these great works by one of the finest theologians in the English language, discussing his depth of insight. And the professor for this seminar, he's something of a noted expert in Jonathan Edwards, certainly in certain evangelical circles. And there's at one point in the third day of being there, we were talking about Edwards' preaching and his sermons. And he made one of those throwaway comments that seminary professors often make and probably don't even remember that they actually made them, but it's all we students ever remember of the actual class. And he said, you have to read Edward's sermon, The Excellency of Christ. It is the most beautiful thing written in the English language. And if you knew this professor, you know he's not given to hyperbole. He's not given to that kind of overstatement very often. So I went home to the hotel that afternoon, that evening, and I read Edward's sermon. The excellency of Jesus Christ. And you might want to do that even later on this evening or this week. And you'll notice how a true vision of the excellency of Jesus Christ is the most arresting thing you might ever see. And that's what we're meant to see here as we see the Son of Man in Revelation chapter 1. And to help you apply it rightly, let's just notice two final things as we end. Seeing the Son of Man brings comfort. Seeing the Son of Man brings comfort. You'll notice the emphasis in the text on his right hand. In his right hand are the seven stars. We'll think about that next week. But that same right hand reaches down in verse 17 to touch John and say what? Fear not. 
the Savior of blinding majesty in verse 16, as the Savior of bountiful mercy in verse 17. Seeing the Son of Man should bring comfort. Number two, seeing the Son of Man should bring confidence. The greatest enemy, the Bible tells us, is death. What does Jesus tell us? He owns it. He owns it. What about all the other enemies? Well, He will vanquish them once and for all. So how is it then that God's people can live in confidence? God's people can live in comfort. They simply behold the glory of the King named Jesus, looking on Him with the eyes of faith. Because it's God's glory amidst His church. It's God's glory even in His church, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that allows the church to continue to live in these ages of tribulation, in these ages of perseverance unto the eternal kingdom, recognizing with joy and power that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against this church because they can't prevail against this king. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would comfort us. We pray that you would embolden us in our witness for Jesus Christ. That you would apply his majesty, his beauty, and his glory in every place where we might uniquely need it. For you've told us that looking upon your son brings life. And we pray that you'd bring us life even this evening. And we pray it in his mighty, majestic name. Amen. Let's stand together as we want to respond to God's word, begin to close our time of evening worship, singing hymn number 100, Holy, Holy, Holy.